Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 16th day of December, 2023. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and let's begin our look at what went on this week with a quick survey first of where we are as of Friday morning, starting with the World War III front, this time in the Mideast, where there's been yet another Houthi attack on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. At least the third serious incident this week, says Zero Hedge's coverage, prompting container shipping giant Maersk, one of the biggest shippers in the world, to order any of its vessels near the southern entrance of the Red Sea to immediately halt. Quote, following the near-miss incident involving the Maersk Gibraltar yesterday and yet another attack on a container vessel today, we have instructed all Maersk vessels in the area bound to pass through the Bab al-Mandab Strait to pause until further notice, said the Danish international liner. This after Houthi-controlled Yemen struck two Liberian flagships in the strait on Friday, said a U.S. defense official. Underlining the threat to any vessels and shipping lanes that are being targeted by the Iran-aligned group. And given the shipping worldwide is already in a world of hurt, folks, this is a big deal. On the U.S. border invasion front, we're 10,000 potential terrorists today, including a whole lot of military-aged males from China, MS-13, and who knows where else just isn't evidently enough. This from Breitbart, Texas, also via Zero Hedge, about a recent investigation they conducted at the Tucson International Airport in Arizona, which brought to light, says the story, significant concerns, gee, do you think, regarding border security and migrant processing. Yeah, you want to get your Obama phones, your bus tickets, and now your plane tickets? You better stand in line while the rest of us have to wait though in endless lines to get on planes well folks that is if you really want to and we'll definitely miss our flight says the piece if you don't have your big brother approved id migrants released by the border patrol were observed boarding u.s flights without having to use the standard identification required not only for most citizens but even non-invading actual travelers with visas the article includes a picture of a special line for quote non-u.s citizens without passports es en español también. Makes me wonder how long till we see it in Mandarin. So as the story, there are obvious national security implications here, but whatever it is that replaced the U.S. government certainly doesn't seem to give a damn. Or maybe, folks, the truth is they really do want the invaders to come right on in and fly wherever they feel like or wherever their handlers tell them to go. And maybe this is a related story, or maybe not. You know, this week, the big news in the waste stream has been booga, 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 be afraid, be very afraid of a different smoke screen than we were pushing last week. It's the cyber attack that we're telegraphing that's planned for a theater near you real soon now. Why, there's even an Obama movie greasing the skids for it. Now, is the cyber attack a real threat? Of course it is, but so are all the other things that they don't want you to know about. So what's the difference here, and why the emphasis on that one? Well, maybe because in New York, there was a different kind of a beta test. The FDNY says a piece from the Daily Mail, races to rescue New Yorkers who were trapped in dark elevators as the Big Apple and a lot of New Jersey were plunged into chaos by a sudden mass power outage sparked by, nope, not a cyber attack, but an explosion at a Con Ed plant in Brooklyn. Ah, well, not to worry. It didn't last too long. Most electricity was back up and running in fairly short order. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along. Oh, yeah. And on the other hand, here's some news that people have been waiting for for so long that almost makes you want to scratch your head. 
breaking, said a piece on Friday morning, all 221 House Republicans have voted to open an impeachment inquiry into the fake president and criminal mob boss, Joseph Robinette Biden, a.k.a. the big guy. Why, who knows? If miracles never cease, they may even cite whoring crackhead son Hunter for contempt of Congress. So did all the Republicans in the House finally grow a spine? Honestly, folks, that's not even remotely what surprises me, or should surprise any of us. Says the Gateway Pundit's coverage, the vote was along party lines, 221 to 212. What? Does that mean there really are 212 communists in the Congress who honestly can't recognize treason, high crimes, and misdemeanors? Not to mention just dementia and total incompetence when it walks into the wall right in front of them? At this point, though, nothing should surprise us. I guess, if you think about it, these are people that are used to looking at treason right there in the mirror every morning. From there, let's begin to take a look back at some of the other stories from earlier in the week. And on that note, I guess, to put things in proper perspective... I'd better set this part up with a bit of a story. There continue to be serious rumblings and warnings on the economic meltdown front. Just how long does the almighty fiat dollar have left before the entire world realizes just how far gone it is and ditches it completely? Ultimately, even Americans will start to figure that one out. But we're not quite there yet, although you can smell it from here. Plandemic 2.0 is rumbling and almost all of the pieces are evidently in place. But that hasn't happened yet either. The biggest bunch of scientific BS in history is still being pushed at places like the UN's COP28, where billionaires fly their corporate jets to tell you how you have to starve and their carbon footprint is immaterial, which is the only thing they're saying that's actually true, even if their carbon footprint is actually surpassed only by their hypocrisy. And there were lots of other candidates to kick things off today, too. Turns out the one that actually attracted my attention was one that was a long time coming, and we will get there in just a minute. It's actually good news. But when I saw the coverage on that one, such as it was, it inspired me to take a look around and just see how the WAPO, New York Times, and other criminally negligent networks and so-called news agencies were covering it, or if they were at all. And in the process, I found, sadly, largely what I expected to, but I did come across this piece, courtesy of Martin Armstrong on his armstrongeconomics.com site, entitled, and this fit, and this is how we're going to start off, We Have the Stupidest People in Government in History. (laughs) And guess what? The article is really short and consists mostly of just the other headlines that he was putting together to make a similar point. One of them says, video, hard issues are skyrocketing in the military, says a U.S. Navy medic. Gee, tell me something we don't know. Related story says Air Force again has dangled a $600,000 check in bonuses in order to try to keep pilots in uniform. That is, if they don't drop dead, walk into their planes. The commentary says that the Biden regime's stupidity in mandating that those in the military submit to this worthless experiment in the mRNA vaccines or be dishonorably discharged has resulted in not just a shortage of pilots and, of course, not just the inability of the U.S. military to actually fight a war, which they're pushing for anyway. And not only that, folks, these idiots are trying to say, we can fight it on three fronts, too, China, Russia, and the Mideast, because our fuzzies, trannies, and perverts can take on your well-trained military fighting men any day. Does anybody remember the Monty Python flick, The Holy Grail, and The Black Knight? Look, you stupid bastard, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look, just a flesh wound. The Black Knight, too, obviously had too high of an impression of his combat skills, but at least he would have still claimed to be a man. Writes Martin Armstrong correctly, this is so bad you just plain can't make this stuff up. My own lawyer, he said, who took the shot so he could travel, ended up with blood clots and now cannot fly. Pfizer should have been shut down. And the heads of all of these evil corporations, 
as well as those traitors in the U.S. military who foisted it on our armed services, should be in prison for treason and manslaughter. But the so-called representatives in Congress who signed off on all this would never admit they passed such decrees on the orders of the like of Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum und International Fascism. Oh, and by the way, that $600,000 bonus for those who choose to stay in uniform is a maximum over 12 years. That's provided they live that long and that the dollar survives that long, too. But, folks, the story that I almost started off with, actually it was several stories, all kind of interrelated, had to do with Elon Musk and Twitter, now X, which has decided finally to reinstate Alex Jones because if they actually cared about free speech, they never would have done anything remotely like what they did to begin with. But it evidently took Musk quite a while to realize he'd been duped. He did, however, ask Twitter users, as promised, whether or not Alex Jones should be reinstated to the platform. And with almost 2 million votes finally in, the consensus was simply overwhelming, with over 70% saying yes. To which Elon Musk tweeted on X, Vox Populi, Vox Day, the people have spoken, and so it shall be. After which, he held an interview and evidently invited Alex Jones to conduct it, along with a number of other people that the Waystream likes to call far right-wing conspiracy theorists. And that now obviously includes Elon Musk. Which brings me full circle, folks, to the meta-news that encouraged my introduction today, because ultimately, I was surprised how little coverage the event got. The Daily Mail at least talked about it, with spin that was, while not unexpected, utterly over the top. The implication was nothing short of how dare they bring back that conspiracy theorist who wanted all those kids at Sandy Hook dead, and thought it was a hoax anyway. Or, or wait a minute, is that a bit of an exaggeration, given that the truth there, including what he said about it, and apologized over and over and over and over and over again for, has been out for years at this point? Not so as you'd know it from the Daily Mail headline, which says, and they didn't even mention the reinstatement of the headline, Elon Musk asks Alex Jones about the whole Sandy Hook thing, says the headline, on X's spaces as the controversial host, and that's the nicest thing they said about him in this whole piece, laments the constant apologies he issued for saying the school shooting was a hoax. Despite, says the subheadline here, like Adolf Hitler said, folks, just keep repeating that big lie. Eventually, people may believe it. So here goes, quote, the conspiracy theorist repeatedly calling the Sandy Hook school shooting a hoax. Oh, good grief. The billionaire entrepreneur they claim spoke with Jones to an audience of over 60,000 listeners on the live streaming platform. That's probably a gross understatement, especially now that people are realizing it will be up soon for replay. And most of the rest of the story, folks, was total unmitigated BS, focusing on pictures of the poor little kids and how awful it was that Alex Jones ever said such a thing. And he owes a billion dollars to those who were victimized by his evil speech, which is at least, I guess, as reasonable as those who were never slaves being victimized by those whose great, great, great grandkids, they say, now owe them trillions of bucks. As Alex Jones himself pointed out, this was an eye-popping, fully over two hours of interview, and they focused on about 1% of it. The part that even Elon Musk seemed to want to get out of the way so they, they could talk about other, obviously, more important things. But it was the Daily Mail spin, folks, that got me asking myself the question, gee, just how did the other really nasty news outlets that represent the Waste Stream's Ministry of Truth handle the same story? Or did they? Answer? When it comes to the Washington Post... Barely. And the New York Times? Well, near as I could tell, not at all. Certainly not on any of the front pages. A search of the rag, however, which in electronic form no longer even merits the title of birdcage liner, 
did at least admit on page B2 on Saturday that the evil Elon Musk was bringing the, quote, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones back to X. The WAPO, though, seemed to be far more upset with their other archenemy, Tucker Carlson. And on December the 11th, they had a piece on the national news page about how Tucker Carlson helped persuade Elon Musk to reinstate Alex Jones on X. How dare he? And actually did an interview with the guy on that same platform. At least they got around to admitting that Tucker's interview with Alex Jones got over 16 million views, which got the attention of ex-owner Elon Musk, who then posted his poll. But as I indicated up front, while I was doing my dive into yellow journalism, I couldn't help but note just how bad it really was. For example, here was one of the pieces on the WAPO's front page. And how dare they suggest that Tucker Carlson needs fact-checking because his interview with Alex Jones was, quote, littered with false claims. With this up there, quote, how a true believer's flawed research helped legitimize homeschooling. Say what? Does anybody listening to this show really believe crap like that? I can tell you folks having known literally dozens, if not hundreds, of homeschooled kids that have now grown into fine young adults over the last several decades that there's literally no comparison. And as compared to what? How many of us know? Probably more, if not many times more. Drug addicts, reprobates, and blithering idiots who graduated from the public cesspools. Some of them, though, didn't manage to get out of there with all their genitalia intact. And the WAPO literally must have no shame to print tripe like this. Quote from the headline, Brian Race says that homeschool students do better, but his daughter tells a different story. The man who heads the National Home Education Research Institute in Salem, Oregon, has spent the last three decades as one of the nation's top evangelists for homeschooling. Begins the hit piece, and he's published studies purporting to show that these students soar high above their peers in what he calls, and I would say this is an understatement, folks, institutional schools. As you know, your host prefers the term public cesspools or indoctrination centers. That was long before they got as bad as, well, as horrible as they are now. But listen to this. Ray's research says this reprobate writing the piece, Laura Meckler, is nowhere near as definitive as his evangelism makes it sound because his samples are not randomly selected. And much of his research has been funded by a powerful homeschooling lobby group. Critics even say his work is driven more by dogma than scholarly detachment. You mean the same critics that want to take your kid's genitalia off and inject them with Cyclone B that was never actually scientifically tested? Well, at least not that they're willing to tell you about. Well, they want to feed them bugs and make sure they starve to death in a carbon-free world so they can fly their jets and continue pushing their dogmatic, pantheistic dogma about how Mother Earth just hates when you exhale CO2? Good grief. And I'm not going to spend really any more time on this piece of utter crap, but I will quote one paragraph here. Listen to this and think about how, well, idiotic it is if you have any understanding of actual science or even good English writing. Taken as a whole, and I'm quoting, the academic literature shows mixed academic outcomes for homeschooling. Some studies find benefits. Others show deficiencies. Unquote. And what an insightful critique. Is it just possible, folks, that just like some public cesspools are less evil than others because maybe the parents care a bit more and pay attention to what's being shoved down their little kids' throats? Just like some parents do a better job of educating them and, yep, keeping them away from the crap that intends to kill them than others do? Why, I bet if I searched hard enough and wanted to do a twisted study, I could even find a couple of good public schools out there somewhere, especially if they ignore the federal guidelines and don't teach to the federal standards, unconstitutional as they obviously are.
This is tripe masquerading as informed commentary. Oh, and by the way, what's the real problem here? You knew it. If you read deep enough into this bit of crap, you'll see it. Quote, Ray comes from a conservative Christian movement that sees homeschooling as a biblically mandated counterweight to secular modernity. In other words, the kind of things that little kids should grow up knowing, whether they're true or not, especially if they're not, like we enlightened ones do, who reject all of that God of the Bible stuff, and also know that math and science are white privilege. Don't even ask them about English and grammar. Because you know what they've done to American history. Oh, yeah. And how do you know whether or not homeschooling is really or really isn't better than public cesspool indoctrination? Answer? Why, you subject them to the battery of standard tests written by guess who and see whether or not they get into the selective elite colleges where they can finish the dumbing down. (laughs) This is beyond the pale, folks. I got to ask it, unless you want your kid to learn how to grow up and be on the take, why the hell would you want to send them to a college like Yale or Harvard or the University of California at pick a leftist campus, where the only thing of value they're really going to learn is how to be a good debt slave for the rest of their lives? But if you don't understand things like selection bias, conditional probabilities, then yeah, how tests too can measure absolutely nothing worth knowing, you might miss the point. Let me just ask it this way. Do you really think that an election could be so blatantly stolen, except in a nation of dumbed-down, blithering idiots, and, of course, those who enable them, and are willing to sit still and watch while it happens? This is as close as the author gets to actually admitting a bit of that truth. Home education, she says, is not an easy area to study because very few states require these children to take exams, you know, the kind that we would want to write for them. And this is the result of intense lobbying by homeschool advocates and a contrast with public cesspools, she spelled it wrong, where almost all students are routinely tested. (laughs) And we know what that shows, don't we? It's just not possible to, quote, conduct a gold standard academic study where some students are randomly assigned to homeschool and others forced to suffer at the hands of, quote, traditional school. That's a funny way to put it, isn't it? I doubt that in traditional schools, kids would have had to worry quite so much. I certainly didn't about being forced to take various prescription drugs or later on having your breasts if you're a little girl or whatever else you might want to keep if you're a little boy cut off. I can't help but think, you know what? Just let those parents who care actually decide what's best for their own children. What a concept. But as bad as the WAPO is, it was the New York Times that, as usual, pretty much made your host want to take a shower after I even perused what they were calling news. For example, one of the big subheadings on the front page is called the COP28 Climate Summit. What you need to know. Carbon captures potential. Big oil, it says, versus science. Oh, and my personal favorite, the climate FAQ, because climate science is complicated. So, you dumbed-down public school-educated New Yorkers, here's what you need to know, whether it's true or not. Now, the actual stories in this section, that was just the heading up top, have titles like, What ails offshore wind, supply chains, ships, and interest rates? Yeah, the problem, it says, is government officials and energy developers have misjudged, do you think, the difficulty of constructing huge clean energy projects in the United States. And this in spite of the fact that they're being subsidized to the tune of billions of newly printed fiat bucks. But no, folks, they didn't mention that last part. They do, though, try to blame things like the booga-booga flu and the bioweapons and all of the idiotic stuff that was done as a result for the problems, even though they admit eh, they're not going to be nearly as wonderful as they probably thought they would. 
How about this one? Countries most at risk, how dare they, call the proposed climate agreement, maybe somebody at least can see through what they're being force-fed here, a death warrant. The subheading says the working draft made public at the U.N. summit of all the wonderful people who know what's better for us than we do in Dubai would not commit nations to phasing out the fossil fuels that are dangerously booga, 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 heating the planet. This, folks, is what passes for news from Big Brother's public private partners, anyway, in the Ministry of Truth. Now, as for a bit more of a different kind of look, let's turn to this story. I'll admit I like it a lot better than the New York Times. It comes from Zero Hedge, and it says that the U.N. climate Karens have melted down. And this is pretty much the same story, but told a little bit more truthfully, after the COP28 summit has decided, maybe they just couldn't keep telling the lie and getting people to believe it, that they needed to ditch the fossil fuel phase-out language. As you might expect, the piece begins with a reminder about what Sultan al-Jaber, president of the UN's COP28 climate summit, said last week, for which he drew such great derision from the horrors assembled there at the conference with their carbon-spewing jets and lavish lifestyles, when he insisted that there is no science behind the calls to phase out fossil fuels. And we talked about that part last week, folks, because it's actually true. Before getting into a hilarious eco-fight with three leading women from the conference over climate change and gender. But while those remarks from Al Jabber do criticism from the so-called scientists and other whores there at the conference, I guess I could point out again that mere hookers, folks, only lease their bodies. These whores don't have any real integrity to sell, but they're more than happy to sell out your bodies and your children's. They were in stark contrast, notes Tyler Durden, to the view of Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the United Nations, who claimed at the climate summit on Friday. And by the way, folks, if this was some leftist rag like the Daily Mail, they should say, without evidence, but no, they're not going to say that. Quote, the science is clear. The one and a half degree Celsius limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels, not reduce, not abate, phase out. With a clear time frame, unquote. Uh-oh, did he actually say the quiet part out loud? The scientists say you all are going to die. So, continues Zero Hedge, fast forward to Monday, when the leftist, and they didn't put the word in there, but I will, because the leftists love it, Financial Times reported that a draft agreement from the summit has now dropped all references to that phase-out of fossil fuels, following opposition from oil and gas-producing countries led by Saudi Arabia. So isn't that kind of funny, while at the same time ironic? The people who are going to die because they don't have fossil fuels to harvest, plant, ship, and cook their food, much less heat their homes and even power their electric cars, don't seem to be able to stand up for themselves, even though they're the ones that will be the first to die. But it's the producing nations that just want to sell some oil that will maybe at least stand up for them. They're just not going to want to take dollars for it, though. So now you already know how the WAPO, New York Times, and other leftist rags will spin it. The document says the peace, which will have to be agreed on by almost 200 countries at the summit in Dubai, why? They can just force it down people's throat. Who cares whether those countries agree or not? We'll set out an optional range of actions that countries could take to cut emissions to net zero by 2050. They won't say it. I will. There's an or else in there somewhere, don't you know? All of this includes reducing, quote, consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly, and 
equitable manner so as to achieve net zero carbon emissions by before or around 2050 in keeping with the science, unquote. Don't you dare say otherwise, because the science is a god and does not allow opposition. But it is big on human sacrifice, and certainly that's intended to include you because they want to destroy everything that will actually allow the peons to be fed, clothed, have warmth, or, ooh, even electricity. Said one of the petrified scientific imbeciles there at COP28, quote, we will not go silently to our watery graves. <laughs> and ironically, as Zero Hedge notes, he spoke to a room full of elites with their beachfront carbon-fuel air-conditioned mansions. But arguably the biggest climate current of all, who also made billions by pushing the BS, Al Gore, wrote a lengthy screed on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, slamming COP28 as having fallen short of his lofty expectations and, quote, being on the verge of complete failure due to the elimination of that idiotic phase-out language. Said the booga booga billionaire, the world desperately needs to phase out fossil fuels as quickly as possible, unquote, because that's enough of that. But even at COP28, they weren't quite drinking all of Al Gore's Kool-Aid, which is at least a somewhat encouraging note to take us to the break. We'll be right back. Did you write the book of love and do you have faith in God above? If the Bible tells you so. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. This is Mark Allen. Let's kick this one off with a sign of the times piece from Japan via the Epic Times. And it says that the nation of Japan has approved the world's first self-amplifying mRNA Zyklon B injection. They call it SA-MRNA COVID-19 vaccine, although they haven't bothered to publish safety or efficacy data for the shot. And I'll start right off by saying, gee, isn't that funny? And so what? They just make it up anyway. Anyway, Tokyo-based Meiji Seika Pharma received approval for manufacturing and marketing its so-called Costive SAMRNA COVID-19, not Vax. The company announced in a press release on November the 28th, the mRNA and the vaccine, and here's the key, is designed to self-amplify when somebody is stupid enough to deliver it into their cells, which generates a strong immune response. Yeah, this is the body trying to get rid of something that's planning on destroying it, I think. Anyway, and the potential, they say, for an extended duration of ahem, protection. Costave is the world's first approved product. <laughs> what difference does that make? Applying self-amplifying mRNA technology, according to the press release. And the story continues, while mRNA and SA mRNA are RNA, so-called vaccines, that use a virus's genetic code against it and against the people who inject it. When an mRNA vaccine is injected into an individual, the mRNA reprograms their cells to make a specific protein, and thus, at least allegedly, stimulate an immune response up until it destroys the immune system completely, as we've seen. Um, it's hard not to be too cynical about this, folks, so I'm trying to get through this. Anyway, an SA mRNA vaccine takes this concept even further, it says, by making multiple mRNA copies, each of which ends up generating more, more, more of the wonderful spike protein in the now reprogrammed body of the spike protein factory. 
So what we have here, in fact, is a super Zyklon B. And you got to ask, gee, what could possibly go wrong? i got another story to follow that one up. This one not nearly as surprising, but if you put it in proper perspective, every bit as disgusting. Comes courtesy of Bob Unruh, who usually writes for World Night Daily, but I saw this one up on the Gateway Pundit. A controversy has erupted, he says, quoting a local television commentator in the Pacific Northwest when John Rance on his program on KTTH reported on what's going on in the public cesspools on the upper left coast. It appears, he says, to pit actual science, you know, the kind that used to be supported by experiment data and things that actually were true in the real world, against the leftist wokeness ideologies. And wokeness wins, at least in the public cesspools, because a student failed a quiz in that so-called school by answering correctly and actually scientifically. But those responses were contrary to the wokeness that a whole lot of public cesspools are now forcing students to wallow in, and students who aren't willing to pretend to be woke are failing. Rance explained how far afield from reality at least one teacher, (laughs) sick, in the public cesspools is now straight, Strayed, folks? Been herded, I think is a better way to put it. Quote, an activist history teacher in the Seattle, says Pools, failed a student on a quiz for saying, how dare he, or is it she now, that only women can get pregnant and only men can have penises. Yep, that's too many, and you're out of here, a girl, a boy, whatever. Rats noted that 10th grade ethnic studies world history teacher, good grief, at Chief Stealth International High School. Say what? Sounds like something is stealthy there, and it's not education. Gave students a quiz entitled, Understanding Gender Versus Sex. And the quiz provided a series of true or false statements with multiple guesses. All you really have to do to pass this thing is just say, hey, what does the world and reality and scripture tell me? And answer the opposite. Sounds like the ideology-driven paper, GD, you think, included demands about pronouns. And when someone insists that others address him, her, she, she, or it as they, them, along with other leftist idiocies. Two questions, however, are not only objectively false, but students are being taught the exact opposite, reported Rands. Question number four was a, quote, true or false, with the statement, all men have penises. The student labeled the statement true since it, in fact, uh, well, is true. But the teacher penalized the student, whose brain hasn't completely been turned to mush yet, claiming that women, too, can have a penis. I wonder if she bothered to produce one from her purse, said the report. And question seven, similarly, was a so-called true or false question with the statement this time, only women can get pregnant. The uh, same aforementioned student marked that statement true because, well, it is. Only women can actually get pregnant. But the student was again penalized because this thing said the answer is false. Men, too, can get pregnant. When the student's mother contacted the warden, she was, quote, met with silence. But she said on Rance's show, I keep trying to wrap my head around how it's legal to teach inaccurate information and force students to answer questions against their beliefs or receive negative scores. Or for that matter, folks, how they're being taught absolute lies and told it's the truth. And remember, these are the same folks who try to accuse you of misinformation. And she accused the school of teaching (laughs) political beliefs rather than actual facts. The school district, however, claimed that the quiz was inclusive and that it was therefore appropriate. And a district statement claimed 
Seattle Public Schools, they spelled it wrong, they left out the cess part, is dedicated to establishing inclusive environments that allow exploration of contemporary issues, specifically examining the impacts of power systems such as racism and patriarchy, unquote. And if you want to see power systems, folks, just look and see what we're going to ram down the throats of your little boy and girl students. That is, before we show you real power by cutting off their breasts and genitalia. Are you going to put up with it? In the last couple of years, they've demonstrated how well they can stunt their growth and destroy their ability to understand language, facial expressions, and human interactions, and now they're completing the destruction of their brain. Their statement, though, contended rants, just simply failed to address the issue of why the questions' answers are simply wrong. And as he also added, it's just not clear how this unscientific lesson around so-called gender identity was in any way connected to world history. Now that one, folks, your host can answer. Because if they're able to get away with this and teach the next generation idiocy and things that are absolutely factually not only untrue but destructively so, they can bring world history, as they intend, to an end. Here's one more of those stories that we've already heard. We certainly knew this actually a bit over three years ago now, but it's encouraging at least to see a few more people running for political office having the guts to come right out and say it at a gubernatorial debate in West Virginia. A Republican named R. Mac Werner, who's also a 23-year veteran of the U.S. Army and current Secretary of State of West Virginia, and who's positioned himself as a, quote, battle-tested leader on his campaign website, based on his military and administrative experiences, recently doubled down on his past allegations of what's been obvious to those that have been paying attention for years now, the widespread fraud in the 2020 presidential election. And this time, he went right after the CIA, directly stating, quote, the election was stolen, and it was stolen by the CIA. He referenced testimony by Mike Morrell, former deputy director of the CIA, before Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee, and he highlighted Morrell's testimony regarding a conversation with former campaign official, now turned scumbag masquerading as Secretary of State himself, Antony Blinken. Warner noted that this conversation involved a report about Hunter Biden's infamous laptop from hell that occurred just days before the release of an October 19, 2020 statement from the lying, treasonous 51 former intelligence officials who came right out and tried to rig the election pretty much directly. The statement suggested that the story about the laptop from hell was influenced, their term, by a Russia, Russia, Russian disinformation campaign. Turns out, folks, it was the American communists. Quote, when Mike Morrell testified under oath to Jim Jordan that, yes, he colluded with Antony Blinken to sell a lie to the American people just two weeks before the election for the very purpose of throwing the presidential election. Well, he said, how does it not get stolen if the FBI covers it up and Mark Zuckerberg pays 400 million bucks to put his thumb on the scales, said Warner. And you might recall in an interview featuring Jim Jordan and Cash Patel that Mike Morrell confessed under oath that the Biden Fuhrer campaign was behind that letter signed by 51 so-called former intelligence officials in order to expressly suppress the laptop story. The campaign wanted something, anything, for Biden to use to defend himself during the 2020 debate against Trump, so they just made up the extravagant lie and recruited those 51 traitors to sign the letter and lie to the American public through their damnable teeth about the laptop that they all knew belonged to the money mule for the big guy himself, Horan Hunter Biden. The laptop included bank statements, incriminating emails, photos of meetings and gifts from various communist Chinese and other business partners that the Biden Fuhrer has lied continuously about, not only ever since, but before. Warner's been consistent, saying that the CIA posed greater worries for him 
and I think he's correct on this, than foreign adversaries like Russia and Iran. Referring to the PSYOP letter, he said, so they put the information out. Biden uses it. Catch that, he says. Joe Biden used that against Trump in the election just two weeks prior and said, oh, that has been debunked by 51 intelligence experts. They laughed and bragged about what they got away with. And he cited his own military service, along with General Flynn's, to say, quote, we're familiar with psychological operations. And this, he said, is where I really get pissed. They lied to the American people. He added that it was more than two years before he really started to worry about those domestic enemies. And, quote, that domestic enemy, we've met the enemy and they are us, it's the CIA and the FBI, unquote, he said during that debate, to cheers from the audience. Somebody's finally coming right out and saying what everybody else there has known for, well, three or more years now. And does anybody really think they don't intend to do exactly the same thing again? Next today, I want to spend a few minutes looking at at least a couple of articles, one from Charles Hugh Smith first, about whether or not America, as he puts it, could have a French-style revolution. In the past, he said, I thought that the odds of America experiencing a similar revolution to what happened in France in 1789 were low due to the different political, economic, and cultural conditions present both then and now. But recently, he said, I've had to consider the possibility that America's extremes of wealth, income, and power inequality are powder kegs awaiting ignition. By French-style revolution, says Charles Hugh Smith, I don't mean a violent overthrow of the ruling elite as much as a tumultuous reset of how resources and power are distributed. Systems become vulnerable to such resets, he says, when they have become highly asymmetrical, out of balance in how they distribute resources and power, and rigid in their defense of the extreme inequality of that distribution. Now here, folks, your host will pause right up front and say, I've talked about a French-style revolution before, and I usually mean something very different, a style of revolution where blood literally flows in the streets and the guillotines get hungry for victims, and a revolution that is largely characterized by the complete absence of faith in the creator of the universe and those fundamental principles that were called self-evident truths that guided the American revolution in a very different direction and away from a satanically evil, outright death-dealing outcome. So back to Charles Hugh Smith's analysis, at least for a while here. The fundamental source of democracy's stability, he says, and oops, he got that wrong, is the dynamic competition between various interests and the dynamic equilibrium of what were supposed to be those three co-equal separate branches of the state, each balancing the others by restraining the dominance of any one branch or interest. The problem, he says, and I think this is a valid point, is that the extremes of inequality that we're seeing undermine that so-called stability as the wealthiest elites now bring such a preponderance of wealth to bear that each of the three branches of the state are now beholden to the interests of the few, leaving little recourse to the many. In other words, folks, they buy the system with fake money to boot. When the agenda and narratives have been shaped by the wealthiest elites, the foundations, the think tanks, the corporate PR, and the lobbyists, then electing different representatives has little, if any, effect on the overall power structure. The masses may still be able to influence cultural or social policies by voting, yeah, at least if somebody bothers to count them, in a liberal or conservative slate, but the distribution of wealth, power, and resources remain unchanged. And as wealth and power are concentrated into ever fewer hands, the mythology of broad-based access to prosperity has vastly expanded the pool of second-tier elites who feel entitled via the implicit promise 
promises made by the system to their fair share of the income, the wealth, and the power, financial security, and political agency, i.e., a say in public decisions. Well, guess what? That's pretty well been undermined now, hasn't it? These secondary elites, he said, are primarily folks like university graduates and the offspring of upper-middle-class households who've been led to believe that they should have a secure slot in the upper reaches of the economy or their state, and it's a birthright gained by their education and their class. That there are no longer enough slots for this class means that those left out now constitute the raw material of a potentially dissatisfied and potentially angry political class. All right, folks, well, that leads us to what might be called the statement of the thesis, as Charles Hugh Smith puts it. Historian Peter Turchin presents this as the result of the overproduction of elites, his term, a dynamic that he's traced back to previous eras of tumultuous upheaval. Another common factor, says Smith, driving the masses to revolt is when the essentials of life are no longer either affordable or available in sufficient quantity. And your host can't help but add again, this is why I've spent so much time talking about energy, folks. Energy literally is the wheel that makes everything else go around. And when they destroy that, they have destroyed the utter basis for modern civilization. Historian David Hackett Fisher has documented the perilous impact of inflation, too, i.e. the collapse of the purchasing power of people's wages. And that, of course, is the inevitable result of dishonest weights and measures. Finally, yet another potentially explosive factor, says Smith, is the supreme confidence of the wealthiest elites that the system they rule over could ever turn against them or crumble beneath their feet. In a word, a hubris as extreme as their own wealth and power, the resignation of the masses and the ease of distracting them with ginned-up controversies and crises and consumerist novelties has fed elite confidence that their supremacy is unassailable. This hubris, in turn, leads to the elite becoming tone-deaf to their own excesses. <laughs> Picture people talking about your carbon footprint while they fly their luxury jets to places where they can enjoy their little boys and girls' sex slaves and tell each other how they're going to continue to oppress your ability to fight back against them. Anyway, they become tone-deaf, gee, do you think, to their own excesses and the instability that their excesses are generating within the system. An instability, says Smith, that's currently hidden beneath the resignation and distraction of the masses and the mute frustration of the second-tier elites facing lifetimes of insecurity. Another factor he adds is the promises made by the state generations ago can no longer be met without creating new money on a scale that guarantees destabilizing inflation. And ultimately, folks... Hyperinflation. This new money, he says, is issued as treasury bonds, which are purchased for income by the wealthy, further exacerbating the wealth and income inequality. The power elite are thus incapable of demanding sacrifices of the wealthy, as the prime directive of the status quo is to defend the current asymmetry of wealth and power, which undermines the collective consensus needed to take the collective ist action that might otherwise be needed to reset the system. Well, he begins to conclude, when you combine all these factors together, the result is a potentially volatile mixture awaiting a catalyst. And that may sound a bit like an understatement, but at least it's reasonably well laid out. The confidence of the status quo that it essentially is omnipotent, i.e. the Federal Reserve will always save us and we can print money to infinity and all the other BS you've heard for years now, and the fact that they claim that it's all eternal is itself a factor in the mix. The key factor, he concludes, is the rigidity or flexibility 
of the power structure. If the structure is incapable of being reset or resetting itself to a more flexible, symmetric distribution of power and resources, well, it will come apart as pressures mount. And maybe that's what we're seeing today. Now, again, the primary thing that your host will add to this, because I think he completely left it out, is what was it that distinguished the American Revolution from the French Revolution? And I will suggest it is the entire basis of the way things played out. An obedience to the God of the Bible and faith in him more than men and government. We hold these truths to be self-evident is a whole different kind of animal than the, uh, well, pagan ideals of liberté, fraternité, égalité. Today's woke leftists would replace égalité with equité because they hate the God of the Bible and everything he wrote and everything that followed from it, too. This next story, very much related, comes courtesy of the Burning Platform and also Children's Health Defense, which is RFK Jr.'s organization. And it's about a documentary entitled The Great Taking, which is going to air on chd.tv, where former hedge fund manager David Webb takes the audience step by step, they say, through his forensic investigation into the legal, financial, and regulatory changes that have now set up what he called, quote, the greatest crime ever contemplated, the planned confiscation of everyone global securities assets. Webb is the author of a book by the same title, and he exposes the, quote, scheme by central banksters to subjugate humanity by taking all securities, bank deposits, and property financed with debt. Legal certainty has now been established that the collateral can be taken, he said, immediately and without judicial review. Hell, folks, we haven't had a system or a rule of law for quite a while now. This shouldn't surprise us. By, he said, entities described in court documents as the protected class, says Webb in the film. And he adds, even sophisticated professional investors who were assured that their securities are segregated will not be protected. In an interview over the weekend with President and CEO Mary Holland of CHD, Webb said he's been studying global financial systems and warning of the coming great taking financial collapse for more than 20 years. His decades of hedge fund experience gave him insight into money flows and systemic risks that he believes foreshadow an orchestrated crash. And that, folks, certainly fits with what many of us have been seeing coming for at least that long. Webb, it says, spent years researching historical precedents like the Great Depression era of bank closures and gold confiscation to help him understand the playbook being used by powerful banking interests during times of financial turmoil, which, in fact, they themselves tend to bring about. He first noticed, he says, that money velocity rates showed how excessive money creation drives unstable economic bubbles, which is essentially one of the bases of Austrian economic theory. The mainstream news coverage during the 1990s Asian financial crisis aftermath did not fully explain the odd market movements he said he was seeing. Digging deeper, Webb realized that, quote, the scale of the money creation during this period was very high. He found Federal Reserve Board activity generating over 1% of gross domestic product worth of new money in one week, which was an order of magnitude bigger than annual growth rates, he said. As a result, this massive liquidity influx was not going into the real economy, said Webb, but into, quote, destructive things, wars, various operations that are all about, uh-oh, you knew this was coming, didn't you, control. And Webb compared the state of the economy just before World War I to today's hyper-financialized economy, saying that both were about looting in the late phase of economic bubbles just prior to a crash. 
We've also witnessed a decade-long campaign to change commercial banking statutes and ownership definitions state by state that set the stage for revoking investor property rights during defaults. A default, folks, that it looks like they knew and planned to have happen. Quote, the underpinning of the entire securities infrastructure in the U.S. is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. And this is the entity that was first formed to dematerialize all securities in the U.S., said Webb. He told Holland that a career CIA operative with, quote, absolutely no background in banking or finance, unquote, was involved in this project and later made the superintendent of banks in the state of New York by Nelson Rockefeller. It's very clear, he said, that this was a CIA project. And the Lehman Brothers' failure during the 2008 financial crisis was teed up to cement new precedents allowing elite creditors to seize assets of their clients during financial busts, Webb told Holland. The Lehman collapse involved using client assets secured through derivatives and securitized bonds as collateral, which creditors then seized. So here, folks, is the money quote. The bankruptcy judge said that J.P. Morgan was under safe harbor and could take the client's assets, and, as one of the largest banks, it was, quote, certainly a member of the protected class, said Webb, and those words are used in the decision. In his view, sophisticated financial instruments promote interconnectedness and complexity in global financial markets in order to multiply collateral flows while hiding systemic risks and property rights issues. In other words, folks, it's part of a scam involved in, as he puts it, the great taking. In Webb's assessment, creating centralized pools of assets set up the system for secured creditors to instantly seize collateral. If widespread insolvency hits, as Webb predicts will be triggered, the protected class of big banksters and funds will take all they can, while everyday investors get only a pro rata share of what is left. The main takeaway, he says, of this is that it will affect everyone everywhere, globally, all the way to the top of the system, the corrupt system, your host notes. And this, said Webb, has the potential to unite people to wind this down. Now, here's where I'll part company dramatically with the kind of socialist leanings of, well, Robert F. Kennedy's organization. His heart is in the right place, but unfortunately, he doesn't seem to understand too much of Scripture. In the film, Webb said that central banking should be a public utility. Oh, yeah, like PBS. That'll fix it. The very idea that it should be controlled by private interest, that, he said, is the source of all the problems for humanity. No, folks, it's not. The source of problems for humanity is that they fail to obey the creator that made them and the rules that he wrote down for us, including the dishonest weights and measures upon which this whole corrupt system is based are, as the Bible puts it, an abomination. And they literally carry a curse. I suggest the point of this piece is you're seeing it. And you're seeing why it is that inevitably, regardless of whether it's public or private, and come on, in a fascist system, there is no difference. It ends up exactly the way the creator said it would, with plagues and destruction and death and a complete first meltdown and then, well, reset. So I'll leave you with a question. And that's what happens next. <laughs> 